Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. I romp with joy in, in the, the bookish, bookish dark. dark. What attracted you to poetry in the first place? Um, That's actually a great question. One that I haven't really thought about. I think part of it actually was probably initially my... Um, my dyslexia so because reading although i loved grew up loving reading it was kind of wonderful to find to find a more short form of reading that i could dig into that was even more accessible to me yeah yeah that makes sense and i think also i think i was fortunate i had great english teachers that exposed me to really Poems that I just like started to connect with and that were vivid and just evoked new worlds that I felt like I resonated with. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, one of the reasons we are discussing poetry, a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, readership of poetry has really gone down in the first few decades of this century. And it's a huge cultural heritage that's just kind of like lost to people. You know, it's like something we could all get a lot out of, um, but we're getting less and less out of it because we're not engaging with it partially because it feels very like abstruse second reason is people are super busy and poetry is something you can like slip into your daily routine very easily like you can get an anthology of the 100 best poems and just work through them you know um so whether or not you're dyslexic that that short form you know could could benefit you if you're having challenging you know circumstances fitting in more reading yeah, and I just love how you can open up, like, you're on a bus going to work or whatever it is, getting anywhere, and you can just flip it open to a page and, like, a poem finds you, and you yeah. can connect with it in the few minutes you have to, to lap it up. So yeah. sometimes it's hard to try to immerse yourself in a long-form novel yeah. if you just have a few minutes or 15 minutes, but you can you can like really sink into a few poems in that amount of time or one poem depending on what what it is or that's so where true. you are it's daunting people get daunted and like <clears throat> if you have been like trying to like read something right like we i think last time or the time before we talked about like our archetypal user um slash listener of, of which we are them uh, we all have like a book, a big long form book somewhere, you know, where we look at it and we just feel kind of disappointed because we're like, you know, we started it or we wanted to start it, but we haven't. There's this kind of this feeling of like, what's the point in starting it? Because I know I'm going to be busy. Right. But with poems, you don't have that. You have that like serendipity and freshness where you can just like pick it up at any time. Yeah. And it's choose your own adventure. Like really, like you don't have to start at the beginning. Yeah. You can start in the middle or the end and just... Return to the pieces that, that like call to you, go back, rewind, or <laughs> yeah, uh, fast forward, it, yeah, and um, 
sometimes it's nice if you've never read poetry before, instead of choosing one poet, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, an anthology. If you find, if you can get someone to recommend an anthology to you, especially, I actually have a recommendation, but that will expose you to lots of different poets, and then you can find the ones whose voices you feel like are... Um, just like speak to you what's your recommendation and like um, what's your recommendation and then if you want to find a poem and read it yeah hell yeah it's about time yeah yeah um so it's called essential pleasures a new anthology of poems to read aloud oh that's another thing that i like about this anthology is not only um are the poems excellent in my opinion but they they are meant to be read aloud they've been selected um, by the person who assembled this anthology to be read aloud. And um, given that today both of us are interested in um, reading these poems aloud to allow listeners to um, either learn or hear more about um, reading poetry, because sometimes it's intimidating, like, how do I read this out loud? Whereas prose is a little more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and we'll we'll share yeah, some like so rules these are meant that. for that. Hmm? We'll, we'll share some like rules around like <clears throat> how to read poetry, some basic basic rules. Um, we'll share some some ways in which you can analyze poetry, kind of dig into why it works the way it works, and just like read a bunch of poems as well um, in this episode. So so we'll give you that that starting toolkit. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, why don't we dive in and uh, you can read the first poem of the night. All right, so um, people who have been in a poetry class in school most likely have read this one, but it's a classic for a reason. So this is by Theodore Rupke called My Papa's Waltz. My Papa's Waltz. The whiskey on your breath could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. We romped until the pan slid from the kitchen shelf. My mother, my mother's countenance could not unfrown itself. The hand that held my wrist, wrist was battered on one knuckle. At every step you missed, my right ear scraped a buckle. You beat time on my head with a palm caked hard by dirt, then waltzed me off to bed, still clinging to your shirt. So one thing I like most about poetry or rather poetry that I find myself returning to is poems that can relate two sides of something Mm -hmm. that maybe are in tension with each other and I think my Papa's Waltz does a really excellent job of showing the love and closeness of um, the father-child relationship but also showing that the the father's is a little bit rough maybe mm-hmm. even in in the waltz so that um writing about love can quickly become too sweet and thus like uninteresting yeah. but to show yeah. the, the details in here and i'll bring up a couple um that sh- show the roughness allow it to prevent it from becoming like sanguine or too sweet mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, um, the whiskey on your breath. The very first line could make a small boy dizzy, but I hung on like death. Such waltzing was not easy. 
So there's a little struggle right at the opening, you know? Yeah. Father's been drinking a little. It's that bittersweet quality. You know, the boy is hanging on to what I assume is a boy because it said could make a small boy dizzy. Um, hung on like death. So it's, there's there's a clinging, there's a desire to be close to the dad, but it's also, you know, hanging on like death has that note to it. Yeah. That, you know, there's a bit of fear there mm-hmm. as well. So there's two sides of it. But I think the end of the poem kind of brings it back around and like allows the viewer to see this overall as a sweet like kind of remembrance of the father yeah i feel like the dog wrote this about me (laughs) (laughs) so it the final um i want to say verse um you beat time on my head which you know that that act is a little it's a little bit rough but also again you know it's it's be it's the person is you know the father's being engulfed in the music so you beat time on my head with a palm cake tarred by dirt then waltz me off to bed still clinging to your shirt so that last line of still clinging to your shirt you know i'm i'm staying there i'm hanging on and it it leaves it left me with a with an image of a boy who who loves his dad and you know wants to be close yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the two sides of it allow it not to be too sweet. Yeah, I mean, I see, like, three things there. I see one, which is, like, parent as affectionate caregiver. And then I see, like, kind of a dichotomy between that and um, and parent as disciplinarian. You know? mm, yeah. And maybe this dichotomy is, like, I guess it depends on your parents, but this dichotomy might be even more stark with, like, your dad than your mom, maybe. Um, definitely for this person, perhaps that's the case. Um, and the other aspect of it is like your, your caregiver having their own life. There's this mysterious other side to them where, you know, as a child, you're, you're perhaps kind of like self-focused, but the whiskey on his breath, you know, like his, you know, his mother's countenance couldn't unfrown itself. Mm. He's like hints of a mysterious, um, life away and outside of your relationship you know yeah the, the mother being unhappy from a distance yeah a little bit disapproving but not stopping what's going on yeah yeah yeah, yeah with um with this it's like it also speaks to another major quality of poetry not all poetry but a lot of poetry is compression mm, yes um, yeah and it's also being like kind of imagistic like an image in words um and, and haiku, you know, more than more than most, but all poetry, like, tries to kind of, or at least, like, most poetry tries to get you to, like, evoke an image in your mind using words, and then maybe have, like, second or third layers of meaning that, like, you know, might be more open-ended, might be intentional, might might be there as kind of a mirror for your own feelings and own, own interpretations as mm. well. Yeah, and at the same time, like, because I think some people I know that I've spoken with get get feel like they feel frustrated like what feeling like there's a right and a wrong way to interpret a poem and feeling like the right interpretation is inaccessible to them so to those people i would say or to 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 anyone one thing that i like to say is you know what you experience when you read the poem is is right you know that's an that's there's 
it's it doesn't mean that's what the author's intention was but you can enjoy you have every right to enjoy a poem without having to worry about like necessarily the deeper meanings i think there's a lot of or the correct meaning yeah Yeah. there's a lot of joy and maybe sometimes if you feel the desire to dig deeper and more even learn more about a poet and seeing if that informs your thoughts about it when you read it but you'd by no means have to do that yeah so especially starting out like don't worry and just like and we'll talk more about our recommendations for reading poems out loud yeah. Um, but you know, just read it and just see, hear hear the rhyme and enjoy the rhyme. See if the images evoke something for you, and don't worry about right and wrong. Yeah, and I mean, <clears throat> I can give give like these uh, these four rules on how to read poetry from Thomas Foster, who's this um, professor of literature at I believe the University of Michigan, <laughs> who wrote this book called How to Read Poetry Like a Professor. So, you know, a lot of my, um, you're fine, you, yeah, a lot of my, um, you know, my research for this was reading his book. So, rule one is exactly what you're saying. Just, like, read the poem, don't be too precious about it, Mm. and just remember you can't break the poem. Second rule is to read sentences. So, for the first read-through at least... Um, don't stop where the line ends. Like, mm. obey the normal rules of punctuation and read the sentences of the poem. Um, if you have taken poetry classes, you might already know this. Uh, for me, I actually have never taken a poetry class, so I didn't know this, and it made a huge difference to just, like, my ability to enjoy poetry uh, because it sounds very, very different when you don't stop at the end of every line. It kind of, it kind of destroys, you know, the sound and structure of a lot of poems. Um, another rule is to read the poem out loud. So poetry is very much about sound. Uh, we talked about this a little bit when we went over the Japanese death poems, but to emphasize it even more deeply, poetry is so much about sound that like Robert Frost defined a poem as that which gets lost in translation. So if you don't read it out loud, like you can't speed read or scan a poem necessarily. You're you're really not gonna get out of it what you're mm, supposed to. Yeah. Um, so read it out loud. Obey the sentence structure and and punctuation. Don't be too precious about it. You can't break it, and um, don't stop at the end of every line. And so. Yeah. So to to be ex- explicit, if you come to the end of the line and there's no comma or semicolon or, or anything if you can allow yourself to continue reading forward mm-hmm. that will allow f- for the flow that the that was intended and, um and i mean that's that's not like you know important that that's what's intended but it can sound very beautiful that way because yeah. a lot of times the poems were designed to be read that way out yeah. loud and it's like so it can allow important. for the song yeah of it I think it's it's somewhat important in the sense that like I don't think you have to like there's no correct answer in terms of your interpretation of the poem but like I don't know it's it's very it's very different you know what I mean it's like like for as, as an example if you get a Beatles record that's you know a 33 and you play it as a 45 like extra fast uh, <laughs> like you know it probably sound kind of weird 
Yeah, it's like not you're, you're not gonna quite get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah, it's just your experience of the poem that's gonna change. So let me um let me read one and kind of maybe use it to illustrate this point. And you might have to are you gonna say like where the punctuation is? No, I'm just gonna read it twice. I'm gonna read it once where the uh, lines end and then I'm gonna read it with with Oh, interesting. That's cool. Yeah. It's a nice little experiment. Yeah, yeah. Ah, here we go. Okay. So I'm going to read it the right way first because I just prefer it that way. (laughs) So the context of this is, this is by Seamus Haney. And he is a an Irish poet and Nobel laureate. He wrote this during the Troubles, uh, during an outbreak of violence in 1969. And he was trying to marry the current climate to earlier Viking raiders and settlers and some very old-fashioned uh, poetics. So he kind of like peels back the English language and the way English poetry like has been written to go all the way back to like kind of the day of Beowulf. Um, and he wrote a translation of Beowulf that I actually just bought after I read this book because I really liked his poems. Um, so here is Bone Dreams by Seamus Haney. I push back through dictions, Elizabethan canopies, Norman devices, the erotic mayflowers of Provence, the ivied Latins of churchmen to the scops twang, the iron flash of consonants cleaving the line. So that's, like, if I don't stop at the end of each line, that's what it sounds like. But if I stop at the end of each line, here's what it sounds like. I push back through dictions, Elizabethan canopies, Norman devices, the erotic mayflowers of Provence, the ivy Latins of churchmen, to the scops, twang the iron, flash of consonants, cleaving the line i can't no yeah so you see you see how different it actually is yeah. like it's very different like the life gets squeezed out of the poem when you uh you know when you uh just stop at the end of each line and like i don't know about all of you guys but you know <clears throat> as uh, someone who majored in sciences i took like like whatever like lit classes in high school but we didn't do super deep dives into poetry and I didn't know that, and it's really been compromising my experience a lot, so, yeah. You feel like it's been compromising your experience a lot? Yeah, to, like, you know, if you read poems, like, just stopping at the end of every line, I think it kind of does, for me, it really has compromised my experience, because it squeezes the life out of the poem. Like, the rhythm of the poem, and the way, like, each, like, stanza, which is, like, a section of a poem, you know, connects to the next one, is kind of broken, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you chose a great example for that. The funny thing is it works for like almost any poem. Yeah. yeah, it's like really, Cause, yeah. yeah, the meaning isn't meant to be split up between f- from line to line. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah one thing um, that I want to talk about is, is scansion and like meter and stuff like that, you know, because... A lot of people have heard about like iambic pentameter and stuff like that, but maybe we maybe we read another poem, and and then we can go there. What is scansion? <laughs> um, scansion. Because I, I already chose a poem, but I'm not sure if it's demonstrated. 
No, it, it will be. It's, it's like the pattern of stressed and unstressed syllables that make up like mm. poetry. It's the way like a line scans. Um, and it's like the, it includes um, the metrical structure of poems. So like, mm. and the metrical structure of poems is like how, how each line breaks down into like patterns of stressed and unstressed syllables. Would free verse have scansion? Yeah, it still would, but it wouldn't be like metrically like very orderly and stuff. Yeah. Okay. I chose this poem because I think something that people don't realize who don't read poetry or who are intimidated by or are or not willing to pick up poetry is that poetry can be kind of funny. And so this uh, is something that I would like to to share with people as well. Yeah. Yeah. So this is by John Berryman, uh, and it's called Dream Song 14. So he must have written many dream songs. (laughs) Life, friends, is boring. We must not say so. After all, the sky flashes, the great sea yearns. We ourselves flash and yearn. And moreover, my mother told me as a boy repeatedly, Ever to confess you're bored means you have no inner resources. I conclude now I have no inner resources (laughs) because I am heavy bored. (laughs) Peoples bore me. Literature bores me, especially great literature. Henry bores me with his plights and gripes as bad as Achilles. Who loves people and valiant art, which bores me. And the tranquil hills and gin look like a drag and somehow a dog has taken itself and its tail considerably away into the mountains or sea or sky leaving behind me wag so yeah yeah this the line um where i I conclude now i have no inner resources because i'm heavy bored is probably one of my favorites ever yeah it's a quality of this poem, which I actually didn't think about when I chose it, but something kind of beautiful about it is it starts on the first two, um, they're not called paragraphs. What are they called? Uh, stanzas. Stanzas. Yeah. They're, they're a little more lighthearted and making fun of what other people find a lot of interest in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the last stanza kind of like leads the reader away kind of off into the hills with the thought of this dog who has left behind a you know me wag which kind of turns the the narrator into just like this this leftover wag of a dog's tail you know like it's it's a bit it's transformative and also um it, it takes you somewhere else than the first half of the poem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I really like that one. I really yeah. like that one. You can just feel like this kid's, you know, refusal to engage with yeah. anything, you know? <laughs> I feel like that's a very real thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Where some kid will just be like, I'm bored. I'm bored. You know, anything you try to like introduce them to, they're like, no, I'm bored. No. You know? Yeah. Boring. Like, especially, especially the good stuff. Boring, you know. Yeah. Um, it's weird because as an adult, I rarely if ever feel that way. But I remember feeling that way as a kid at times. Yeah. 
Because as an adult, you, I guess you just have a lot more freedom to pursue the things that interest you. So you're just like, you know, you might be bored if you're like forced to do something like, you know, taxes or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So there it goes. Like, you know, things like being bored, that's, it's maybe not what you think a classic poem would be about, but a lot of people resonate with that. You know, they're bored by what they should should be focusing on or should be interested in. Yeah. And like, I know I can, I can relate to that too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, agree. yeah. And then sometimes just catching the sight of like a dog running by off into the hills or, or just something that catches your eye. That's what draws you. I mean, that's essentially what happened here is the, like the narrator. I mean, this is just the way I'm interpreting it in this moment is the narrator got a little distracted from their own poem that they were writing and, you know, their thoughts followed that dog they saw out the window or whatever yeah. it was. So that kind of, like, unexpectedness, that unexpected turn mm-hmm. is interesting in poetry. And, yeah, I love the fact that sometimes you just got to make make fun a little bit in poetry. And some of my favorite poems are are funny rather than serious. Yeah, my, my dad's favorite poetry is, like, <laughs> is largely funny. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot to be said for comedy. Like, I, um, I don't know. I feel like when I was younger, I was more drawn to, like, drama, I would say, and, and tragedy. And I just, like, now that I've, now that I'm revisiting a lot of this stuff, you know, as an adult, like, as a busy working adult, and also with some life experience, um, yeah, I mean, I find a lot of the comedy, like, eminently readable, especially, like, in, among the classics, like, Aristophanes like you know Greek comedy versus Greek tragedy like super listenable and also still like super relevant um yeah we'll, we'll talk about that at some point on the podcast too I'll like edit out this cap too I have something by T.S. Eliot if you're interested that's it's like an insult poem <laughs> yeah some of the best insults in the world are from Shakespeare if and if you're looking for a creative uh insults that's a great place to go there's some really excellent vivid ones but along those same lines some again something that you think of should be proper isn't necessarily yeah and so i have this poem by t.s Eliot, uh, and it's and it's called how unpleasant to meet mr Eliot." uh i didn't i didn't realize until now actually i think it, it could be self-referential i always read the poem without looking at the author thinking that he's just insulting this random man. Yeah. So I think that's kind of a fun way to read it, but this is, this is interesting. Also, maybe someone's being a bit, you know, stand-up-y, like self-critical in a funny way. All right, yeah. so let's get into it. How unpleasant to meet Mr. Elliot. How unpleasant to meet Mr. Elliot with his features of clerical cut and his brow so grim and his mouth so prim and his conversation... So nicely restricted to what precisely and if and perhaps and but. How unpleasant to meet Mr. Elliot with a bobtail cur and a coat of fur and a poor pentine cat and a wopsicle hat. How unpleasant to meet Mr. Elliot, whether his mouth be open or shut. (laughs) And that's it. (laughs) That's interesting because like when I think of T.S. Elliot, I think of such like serious, heavy poetry. Yeah. But it's nice to see, like, he has a comedic side, too. He has a bit of range. I think he was responding to a poem called... Because there's a little little star here, and it says, See, uh, poem, How Pleasant to Know Mr. Lear, on page 4, 
54. So I wonder if it's in response to like a poem that's like the op- the opposite, which is like, oh, this person's so wonderful. And he was inspired by that to be like, let's write a poem about someone being awful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Just having some black humor about it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he thought someone was being like ridiculous and egotistical. Yeah. So, okay. So I, I have a, a funny one here that kind of introduces the sonnet. Um, which, you know, if you're looking for easily recognizable forms of poetry that aren't haiku, the sonnet is probably like one of the most recognizable mm. ones. Like if you see a, a poem that's like roughly square shaped, it's probably a sonnet. Um, oh. Yeah. And so there are 14 lines and depending on what type of sonnet, they can be split up in different ways. Uh, they're typically an iambic pentameter, which brings us back to like the conversation about meter. Um, and we can we can dig into that a little bit after this, perhaps. But <clears throat> here it is. Um, so all we need is 14 lines. Well, 13 now. And after <laughs> this one, just a dozen to launch a little ship on love's storm-tossed seas. Then only 10 more left like rows of beans. How easily it goes unless you get Elizabethan and insist on the iambic bongos must be played and rhymes positioned at the ends of lines, one for every station of the cross. But hang on here while we make the turn into the final six where all will be resolved, Mm. where longing and heartache will find an end, where Laura will tell Petrarch to put down his pen, take off those crazy medieval tights, blow out the lights, and come at last to bed. Oh my god, I love that. I have never heard that. It's so meta, and it's, and not only that, it's like meta about the form in which it, this piece is written. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's almost like a love letter to the sonnet, as well as making fun of the sonnet. <laughs> um, and and they they share a couple of things in here. So like you know when they're talking about how easily it goes unless you get Elizabethan, they're talking about like the Shakespearean sonnet. So there's like two types of sciences, Shakespearean ones and like uh, Petrarchan ones. Um, the Shakespearean ones are slightly like simpler in their organization. Um, the Petrarchan one involves like two clear movements and has a slightly more intricate rhyme scheme. But the Shakespearean ones are just a, a little more straightforward and, and divided with um, a quatrain and couplet arrangement. So, like, here's a Shakespearean sonnet as an example. Here, you can read this one. Sonnet 73. Uh-oh. Oh, it's big. Okay. Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold. Bear ruined choirs... Or late in the sweet birds sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away. Death's second self that seals up all in rest. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed were whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, 
which thou must leave ere long. Yeah, so that's an example of a Shakespearean sonnet. And I, I really like that one. Really like what that what one. do you like about it? it? This is a little bit more dense since it's um, more Elizabethan. So I would love to hear like what select like parts that call to you. Yeah, I mean, I think it just brings a lot of beauty to old age and death, you know? Like, we were talking about death poems previously. Mm. Um, this is an example of, I suppose you might say, like, uh, a death poem in English literature. You know, where he's like, you know, that time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon these boughs which shake against the cold. And using, like, this mm. metaphor of the seasons and, like, of... Um, barren trees to represent like his um his fading life bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang you know it's like so vivid right it's like yeah it is um yeah it's like the former vivacity and playfulness of youth kind of given way to something you know more barren um more dramatic more essential um yeah, and this this part too is really interesting where it's like Let me see. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie, as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. So interpretations, you know it's no perfect interpretation, but you know, this person seems consumed on his deathbed by that which nourished him in his youth you know that concept of like memory um or maybe it's even like the indiscretions of youth like led to his death right like Mm. you know like if you're playing sports you get injured over time you feel the um the results the behavioral residue of uh of the things you've you've done or the psychological residue and you know that sits with you on your deathbed and you have to like process it so the same thing that helped you for or that character potentially get out of bed in the morning, say it be a sport, is the same thing that maybe is giving them the aches and pains that they have at the end. At the end, yeah, yeah. that's a good example of what could fit in that scenario. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. so I like that one. I like that one, and it it feels like not in, for some reason to me at least it doesn't feel very like cliche, you know. Like, the the sonnet that was making fun of the sonnet, they kind of point at, like, the fact that they're kind of, like, you know, over the top and maybe a little cliched. And, yeah, even yeah. The, the fact that the sonnet is usually resolved in the, what, final six lines or whatever it yeah, was. Yeah. Um, that it's not just a structure with words, but it's a structure of when the problem gets resolved in the yeah. poem. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Um, and I actually thought that was cool. Sorry, I know we're going backwards a little bit. I no, thought it was cool how they totally inserted funny. like yeah. characters in decently vividly at the end, like like his wife or his his lover just want like get get the hell to bed already. Like stop <laughs> writing this poem, go to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very cute. Yeah, it is. And it is. definitely, it still tells a story even though it's about making fun of. A poetic form it still managed to, manages to have a story yeah yeah no that was well done that was yeah. by the american poet billy collins and um talking about sonnets and just talking about like you know 
what is like one of the quintessential closed forms of poetry. We could talk a little bit about meter um, because it's one of the more complex and technical aspects of poetry. Day to day, if you're reading it, like you don't like, you, you may not care that much, but you may because it's interesting. So basically like, if we take a common meter that you might have heard of, like iambic pentameter, what that means is there are five metrical feet per sentence. Each metrical foot has the structure of an iamb, which means like it's an unstressed syllable followed by a stressed syllable. Okay. So I can give you an example of what that would sound like. So Detroit, D being the unstressed syllable and Detroit being like the stressed syllable. Mm -hmm. So five of those make like iambic pentameter. Detroit, 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 Detroit. Yeah. And uh, let me give you... Yeah, give an example. Yeah, give me an example from, like, real poetry. The what? My five Detroits is in real poetry? What are you saying? Yeah, I mean, postmodern poetry. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> you have, like, you know, three of them at the top of the page, three of them at the bottom. I mean, who's to say? It's not poetry. Yeah, it could be like E.E. E. Cummings. Yeah. Oh, he's an interesting poet, too. Yeah, what this guy says is like, when he, he has an E.E. E. Cummings collection, and he's like, you could throw away 60% of it, but the 40% that's left is really good. Mm. And, oh, yeah, you gotta edit like a fiend. Yeah. When when you're writing poetry, just like edit it, it condense it, like you were saying. Like, great poetry can be very condensed to its... It's most essential. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because you just have, don't have much to work with. Yeah, how, how this guy describes it, Thomas Foster, he's like, poetry is like a crystal, whereas, like, you know, longer verse is like a house. Mm. You know? So it just has to be very, like, crystalline, refined, refined yeah. you know? Yeah, you're shaving down to just, like, the part that's that you need. Yeah, nothing and, superfluous. And then this like reflective quality, you know, mm. where it's like reflects broader and deeper meaning than is evident just in the poem itself. But yeah, so iambic pentameter. So going back to sonnet seventy three, reading it in a way that kind of emphasizes the the metrical structure, would be like that time of year thou mayst in me behold. Oh, so here you know. The, the time of year that mouth. I can't. Sorry, I can't remember the words. Yeah. Oh. That time of year thou mayest in me behold, when yellow leaves or none or few do hang, upon those boughs which shake against the cold. Is it more like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're trying to like read for the structure, it's like that. But uh, if you're just trying to like you know, for the first time through, what they say is like don't don't bang the iambic drum like the first time through <laughs> but if you're going back through and you're trying to analyze like why it works the way it does and you can go through and do that or what you can do is get a mm. pen and like write down the like stresses on the page and you know write down a little u-shape called a brave or yeah i think it's a brave uh above the unstressed syllable and write down a little tick mark over the stress syllable and you can kind of analyze the structure that way um and metrical structure there's a bunch of reasons you know why poets use one metrical structure versus another one is just the game of poetry itself 
you know, to try to like fit meaning within this form and mm. select form to suit your meaning. So it's this kind of bi-directional like game in that sense. Another is to provide a sense of rhythm, uh, momentum, like forward movement through the poem. Also, um, sometimes, oh, sorry. No, I go ahead. Interrupted. Yeah, yeah. Um, sometimes I think limiting yourself in certain ways allows you to be more creative in other ways that you wouldn't have normally if yeah. you weren't trying to constrict yourself in certain ways. Yeah. Yeah, I so, think that's very true. Yeah. And I, that's true for poetry. I think that's true for music. I think I once heard that, you know, there was this like, I can't remember what band it was for, but there was this famous like manager who um, made made all the musicians in the band like switch instruments and like write a new song. And that's that constriction yeah. forced forced them to be more creative than they would have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And so allowing them to think in new ways rather than fall into old habits. Yeah. And so that's mm. that's what perhaps the structure of a of a poem can do for a poet is forcing them to to be creative in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah, yeah. It's one way to think about it too. And actually, a lot of poets have said on on the topic of free verse that like, you know, free and verse. So free verse is like poetry that doesn't follow any like prescribed metrical arrangement. So like a sonnet has to have certain like um, metrical and formal qualities that make it a sonnet. Um, so if I'm getting this right, you know, like fourteen lines. Um, I believe ten syllables a line. Mm. Um, typically an iambic pentameter free verse doesn't have to follow any of those kinds of um, prescriptions but as a result a lot of free verse is just kind of like self-indulgent and impossible to read and it lacks that musicality uh i think it can lack musicality but i don't think that a lot of free verse is self-indulgent and impossible to read i mean I think it's more about the skill set of the poet. Like, good free verse is, is good as well. I, I personally love free verse, too. Right, 100%. That's what yeah. I was about to say. Oh, like, I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, I was about to say, basically, like, um, poets who write great free verse have their own internal rules for a given poem uh, and their own structure that they, de- they, they devise that's, like, outside of, like, traditional structure. But there still is some sort of coherence and like, you know, um, rule set that they're devising for themselves. So like, you know, Robert mm-hmm. Frost says like, you would no sooner write free verse than play tennis without the net. Yeah. Free verse isn't like no net with a great free verse poet. It's more like creating your own net in a certain like, you know, way or place. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example of a poet who's created their own structure? Yeah. There's a, there's a really good one here. Like, for example, would you say, like, Emily Dickinson has created her own structure because she she enjoyed using the dash and she has very short lines. You know, she doesn't have long lines and her stances tend to be short. Yeah, I would say would Emily say? Dickinson. I would say Langston Hughes. I would say Walt Whitman. Um, in a lot of ways, like, oh, yeah. Walt Whitman was, like, the first free verse poet. Um, Emily Dickinson, you would know better than I, but to me, I just... When I read Emily Dickinson, it feels to me like she has a very strong mastery of like 
steady and traditional metrical approaches you know like maybe uh, i wonder oh my god i'd be so embarrassed if she actually had a structure that i didn't realize or maybe she doesn't but <laughs> she she sounds very like musical and like you know because because that that's ultimately like the purpose of this metrical structure is to like impose musicality like so- songs versus poems one of the key differences is songs have to agree and be in alignment with the metrical structure for them to like you know be on the beat whereas poems you you can afford to not be on the beat but then you lose some of the the music and the sound that makes a poem you know ring um there's a yeah, really... you gotta use other tools instead to make it ring yeah yeah like one one tool that i really like is like internal rhyme so rather than words rhyming at the end of the word like Hatton and Matt, although yeah. they they also have internal rhyme because they both have the at the ah uh, like that that same vowel sound in the center. So actually, but it's more it sounds more distinctive uh, end rhyme. But yeah, internal rhyme. I think things like that, where inner inner vowel sounds in words, you you pick up on as a reader, although you might not notice it, but. It can give a good sound to a poem. So things like that maybe aren't structure, but they could be tools that a free verse poet might employ. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely, and and repetition is another one. Mm, yeah. yeah. So like an example of a free verse poem here is like, you know, Langston Hughes' first published poem, "The Negro Speaks of Rivers," um, and it, it uses a lot of repetition to kind of establish a rhythm. And so here it is. I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood and human veins. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. Mm. So what I thought was a really beautiful example of one. Yeah. yeah, you're right. That repetition gives it a little bit of form. Yeah. And then I also like the reintroduction of rivers at the end, but not necessarily an exactly repeated line. Yeah. That gives a little bit of satisfaction as a listener. Yeah. Yeah, and that speaks to something, like, generally in, in all art forms, I think, which is, like, this tension between, like, repetition and pattern and breaking the pattern. So, you know, when we're talking about meter, or really, when we're talking about structure and free verse, too, the structure is supposed to be, like, you know, provide something for you to grasp, provide a sense of, like, movement, provide, like, you know, provide a sense of rhythm to the piece, um, among other things. But it's not supposed to be like a prison, and it can be, you know, grating um, on the listener, on the viewer, if it's just like constantly repetitious. Mm-hmm. And that's true in design mm-hmm. too, when you have like, you know, a grid that underlies the, the, the design, you know, right. it's like, you want to break the grid as well to draw attention to things, you know. Ooh, that's and really, in music too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool comparison. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, something that I noticed, like, 
in design, they said they say like the grid should be like underwear, you know, it's there, but you know you can't really see it. You know, it's not supposed to be like this prison. <laughs> and I think that's true for like the the metrical structure of a poem too, where it's like supposed to be like, you know, it's not supposed to be this like oppressive cage. Yeah. Mm. You want to read another one? I think I'm trying to decide. So I have one that is wonderful and weird and could be a nice one to end on. And I also have like a shorter one that has the theme of love, which is, um, you know, very popular in poetry. But I know we can't read all of those. So no, do do the short one and then <laughs> we can, we, I, I'll read one and then we can do the longer one. Okay, this one does have a, a lovely rhythm. It, I think it's called a, a rondeau, which actually is a form. Um, Lee Hunt, rondeau. Jenny kissed me when we met, jumping from the chair she sat in. Time, you thief, who love to get sweets into your list. Put that in. Say I'm weary, say I'm sad. Say that health and wealth have missed me. Say I'm growing old, but add, Jenny kissed me. I like that one a lot. Yeah. I, um, this one, I love to read aloud. It's very easy for me to find that rhythm, which I love. And yeah. it shows that you don't need big words to express something. No, it's true. Yeah. Interesting. And, um, in poetry sometimes like interesting words or strange comparisons can like create poetry that really sticks in your brain but this this doesn't need it it doesn't need the the fancy words or the weird comparisons um it just it shows sometimes that like a small little action can stick in your brain and even if it passes away and it's temporary it's something that when you look back on your life makes you smile yeah yeah and also this poem does another thing that I like is sometimes poets will uppercase words and make things sort of personify things into characters that aren't that aren't people. So in this poem, it is at the beginning of a line, so it's also capitalized because it's at the beginning. But the way time is written, time, you thief who love to get sweets onto your list, put that in. You know, it's, this uh, narrator is talking to time as if time were a person yeah and the capital letter i feel like also lends to the fact that it's sort of like a name it's a proper noun in the idea of this poem right right and he's telling time off you know hey time you better put this this in when you look back on my life jenny kissed me you know yeah yeah it's got a kind of like defiance to it where it's like in the face of this you know like implacable like forward moving force like i'm putting my stake in the ground and saying hey yeah here's something you know yeah emily dickinson would also capitalize ideas a lot and make them into more than just like a passing noun or verb she make it more to a proper noun and and that's like that's something you can't be heard when you read necessarily but that's that's a really interesting tool that i've found you know, on the one hand, it's something that can't be heard when you read, but on the other hand, it's so intrinsic to human nature 
it almost like is by default read that way. Like I feel like to personify things is like, you know, just kind of how we interact with the world a lot of the time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. So, you know, one that's interesting kind of speaks to like the gap between the poet and the narrator of a poem is like Robert Frost's, um, poem the road not taken so a lot of you guys have heard this I've, I've, I've read this in the past at some point as well um, we were talking about this earlier today but I'll read through it and then I'll talk about some of the, the nuances here that kind of suggest that this poem um, isn't quite what we take it to be so Robert Frost you know very famous poet um, Nobel laureate you know um, he may have been the poet laureate of the U.S., and if he wasn't, he's definitely like one of our most eminent poets here. Um, so that knowledge, you know, kind of colors our reading of this. So, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps a better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same and both that morning equally lay in leaves so no step had trodden black oh i kept the first for another day yet knowing how way leads on to way i doubted if ever i should come back i shall be telling this with a sigh somewhere ages and ages hence Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So, you know, for me reading that, the way I took it is like, he took the road less traveled, and you know, he became a famous poet. Um, but when he wrote this, he wasn't a famous poet at all. Um, and he, in fact, he had a really indecisive neighbor, and it's not explicitly the case that this is about his neighbor, but it could be. Um, but it, we tend to filter this as if the narrator and the poet are the same person. Mm -hmm. And the poet is in here, but it's just not as clear cut as it as it initially seems. So just something to remember with poetry is like, you know, the poet and the narrator, they have an overlap, but they're not always the same, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you were saying, like, how you took this poem was a little bit different as well than even how yeah. I took it. Yeah. I took, of it, took it, when I read it, I think of it more as, like, a general rule of thumb. You know, really consider the pathway that's not taken as frequently. You know, don't default to the main road, the main way. Yeah. And if in a, at a significant point, point in time you do decide to take the road less traveled by it could make all the difference in your life and I saw that as like a positive affirmation like it, it made all the difference for the better is the implication I made in my mind yeah. of the last line and someone's looking back on their life and knowing they could can't possibly know what the other route would have taken them to but they're they're pleased with their load road less traveled by yeah, and that is what happened to him. You know, he's like, you know, ages and ages hence, like, here's what I'm going to be saying. Mm. And that is probably what he was saying, ages and ages hence. Mm. So it did it did work out that way. Yeah, and not a bad rule of thumb. I mean, sometimes the road less traveled is less traveled for a reason. At other times, it's like, 
just social contagion and like you know um conformity like everyone is just looking in one direction because everyone else is looking in that direction like if you have three I mean, we talked about this in our like frederick douglas episode like if three people go outside and start staring at the sky <laughs> people walking by will start looking at the sky and like i know i would <laughs> yeah and like just the other day we were getting some food and like you know like everyone was just stuck on this road just driving forward oh yeah and literally like we just took a left turn and drove around this entire like like massive like traffic jam yeah and no one was going around we drove on so we decided to be crazy and not follow google maps recommended route and we decided to go on the road parallel so we took a left and then took the road parallel to the one we'd been on and we just cruised right right by um and robert then, trusted it yeah i mean it was just like crazy i was like google maps like what the hell like and I think it's because now everyone's following these apps and I think there are some gaps in them sometimes. Yeah, 100%. But I think even in the past, like, it's just people seeing people doing things tend to follow the people doing things. Honestly, you know? yeah, exactly. To your point, like, I remember how hard it was to choose to turn off that road, even though we saw there was no traffic turning left. Yeah. We're like, oh, is this well, bad? Go is this bad? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, but no, it was awesome and we made sure to take that way on the way back from the restaurant too yeah but yeah yeah it's it's hard to turn away from the road that's traveled by a lot <laughs> yeah 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 one one fact that i read like along these lines um this week was people going into business school like 80 percent of them don't want to be investment bankers or consultants people coming out of business school 80 percent of them want to be investment bankers or consultants so it just speaks to how, like, this kind of social contagion dynamic works and, like, how it causes people to just kind of, like, pointlessly head-to-head compete mm. for prizes that other people prize. Um, yeah. Just interesting. So, yeah, I think it's a decent rule of thumb. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to do it always, but if you do it sometimes, it could make your life very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Do you want to read one more and close it out? Hell yeah. So this poem is one of my favorites because it's just kind of wild and weird and strange. And that's another great thing about poetry is it can briefly take you into a strange world. This is by Mark Strand. Eating Poetry. I'm excited to hear this one. (laughs) Eating Poetry. Ink runs from the corners of my mouth. There is no happiness like mine. I have been eating poetry. The librarian does not believe what she sees. Her eyes are sad and she walks with her hands in her dress. The poems are gone. The light is dim. The dogs are on the basement stairs coming up. Their eyeballs roll. Their blonde legs burn like brush. The poor librarian begins to stamp her feet and weep. She does not understand. When I get on my knees and lick her hand, she screams. I am a new man. I snarl at her and bark. I romp with joy in the bookish dark. I love that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So you're not really sure what's happening here, but you can kind of like enjoy the strangeness of it. And... 
and that beautiful f- phrase in the last line uh, I romp with joy in, in the, the book, book is dark. dark yeah the book is dark I mean poetry is sometimes like defines new ways of describing things yeah I mean yeah. you've never heard of bookish dark before but somehow it informs your vision in your mind's eye and it makes sense in the moment yeah yeah at some point we'll talk about a book called Wonderworks, which kind of talks about like literary um devices and approaches as like new technologies um and kind of like the psychological effects they're intended to have um the inception of like various literary devices so i think there's a lot of validity to that that um that way of thinking about things yeah we'll do that at some point in the future and there's lots more to talk about on poetry too in the future like we'll talk about symbolism we'll talk about the line structure we'll, we'll look at different types of poems um you know we'll dig more into free verse we'll talk about images We'll talk more about songs. So there's there's plenty of stuff we'll dig into in the future. Um, next episode will be about the science of storytelling. Um, and yeah, like I never do like we haven't done any intros or anything so far. Um, this week Arik is not here because I'm sick, and I didn't want to get him sick. But like Jules and I, like Jules is my my fiance. Hi. He's a software engineer. <laughs> Um, studied philosophy and creative writing and loves poetry and so I thought she'd be a really good fit for this episode um, and she if I'm sick she's already sick so yeah yeah although we have been sleeping head to toe just in case yeah you, got, you gotta you gotta do something you gotta try to do something and I'm um, I'm Ion I don't know I've never really like, introduced myself on this podcast I don't really think I I think people would appreciate an introduction yeah, like they had no idea who I was this whole time, you know. Yeah, that's what people have been saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We want people to get to, to know us. Yeah, for sure. But the best way to get to know us is to listen to us for an hour talk about stuff. That yeah. too. Yeah. That too. I mean, yeah. There's another six episodes out there. If you want to get to know me, listen to those. Yeah. And as far as the, um, as far as the app goes. Uh, development continues on that. We're continuing to push forward. Um, the app, Read More, we're using uh, behavioral economics, cognitive psychology, various techniques from there, behavioral nudges to help you read more, get more out of your reading in terms of quantity and quality. Subscribe to the podcast. It's the best way to, to keep up with what we're doing there. Um, also the best way to just like get some tips on how to read more as well as celebrate um, reading and what it can do for you. And Yeah. That's kind of what we have for this week. Thanks for listening. Yeah. See you guys next week.